All right, you may be seated. Uh, kids may be dismissed to Children's Church. <clears throat> that song always gets me. Uh, we, um, we played that song at my dad's funeral, and uh, so it always takes me back. Um, so, uh, today we come to the end of our series, The Opposite of Epic. Um, as we do that, uh, I just want to briefly recap where we have been so far uh, in this series. We began in this series by introducing the idea that we're always searching for a magic bullet, um, a set of life hacks or, or quick fixes uh, that we can take a pill and make everything uh, immediately better. We are always wanting excitement, uh, entertainment, explosions, fireworks, never a dull moment. We want highlight reels, and we get discontent when we don't have our own. We want the most epic job, the most epic relationship, the most epic marriage, the most epic church, and we rapidly lose interest in these things when they fail inevitably to live up to that always epic standard. In contrast, Scripture shows us what it really takes to be spiritually healthy, and that is to have habits and disciplines. Ask any personal trainer who is worth anything, and they will tell you that the key to being healthy and staying in shape is not by taking a magic pill or some kind of a supplement. It is by steadily working out, eating right, having daily disciplines like going to the gym, having a healthy diet, drinking lots of water, getting enough sleep, all of these things in consistency are required to get and stay in great shape. They will tell you to ignore the scores of magazine headlines that read, lose 15 pounds in 15 days, be on your way to your best you by next week. There's no quick fix to physical health and spiritually It is the same way. There is no quick fix to spiritual growth and health. We have to instill daily habits, daily disciplines that slowly grow us in that direction. And we call these habits spiritual disciplines. These things are not a checklist, by the way, to earn favor with God. They aren't things that we do in order to be a good Christian. These are not five easy steps to being a better you. They are what we do in order to pursue closeness with God, to feed our hungry souls the steady diet that they need. And thus far in the series, we've talked about four spiritual disciplines. The first was meditation and Bible study. Then we talked about the uh, uh, importance of a steady diet of that that we don't need just bites or snacks. The Bible feeds our soul, and we have to eat healthy on a regular basis. Specifically, in that message, I challenged you to start the day with your Bible rather than your phone. Let it be the first thing that you read instead of the news or text messages or emails or whatever that first app is that you go to. Let Scripture start your day. Then we talked about prayer. We talked about how prayer is the way that we stay plugged into the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives that protects us from the enemy. And so in that message, I challenged you to pray on your knees three times a day. 
Then we talked about accountability, the fact that we cannot do this alone. Every study done on the topic shows that we are exponentially more likely to meet any kind of goal that we set if there is somebody else doing it with us. And our spiritual life is no different. We need the kind of relationships that involve helping each other forward, iron sharpening iron. And so I I urged you to prayerfully seek a battle buddy, someone to do this with, to have consistent weekly conversations about your heart and your habits, to pray with each other, to encourage each other. Then last week we talked about fasting, how we must have hearts that are focused on eternity, and that fasting will help us to combat the consumerism that is so ingrained in our culture and in our hearts. We're we're trained to be consuming all the time, always consuming, to scratch every itch, to feed every hunger. But by fasting, we show that our only master is Christ, that we trust in Him and Him alone to fulfill our longings. And so I challenge you to fast from something sacrificial once a week. It could be a meal. It could be more than one meal. It could be television or social media or, or anything that's considered to be a sacrifice to you. And if you've missed any of those messages, I encourage you to catch up on the podcast. Today, we'll finish our series by talking about something that doesn't seem like a discipline at all on the surface, but it might be one of the most difficult ones for us to maintain. Today, we will be talking about rest. By a show of hands, how many of you like to rest? Okay, most of us. Uh, How many of you feel like you get enough rest? (laughs) You guys laughing at the title of the sermon there? (laughs) How many of you feel like you get enough rest? All right, there are no hands, exactly as expected. Uh, When I was growing up, I was someone that you might consider laid back. Uh, By laid back, I mean that if there was any way to get out of doing something or to do something quicker, I would find it. I much preferred putting my feet up and doing nothing. I also come from the school of thought that says, work smarter, not harder. So if there was a way to cut corners to make a chore go faster, I would find it. I liked doing nothing, I liked sleeping in, I liked relaxing. I could easily sleep till noon or later if my parents let me, and I enjoyed having breakfast while everyone else was having lunch. Some people, including my mother, would call that lazy. I preferred calling it laid back. Whenever we would go on family vacation, there was a a bit of a war that would happen because my dad, uh, he always wanted to go on adventures when we were on vacation. So he would wake us up at the crack of dawn and we would go off on adventures. And I would always be the one to say, why are we getting up at seven? We're on vacation. Shouldn't we be relaxing? Shouldn't we be sleeping more? And he was like, you can sleep when you're dead. Let's get up and go. I was the same way at Christmas time, when Christmas morning would come along and my brothers would all get up uh, before the sun and, and they would wait until the appointed time to run down the hallway and bang on my parents' door to wake them up. They would do that and then they would circle back around 
to me to wake me up. And I would always respond, the presents are still going to be there at nine. Can I sleep another hour, please? And uh, obviously, the answer was always no. To sum it up, I was the best at relaxing. But something changed in me a number of years ago. I was a youth pastor at a church in Virginia, and I quickly found my schedule filling up with more and more stuff. It got worse when I took on the role as college pastor, and then it got even worse when I also assumed the role of family discipleship pastor. There were Bible studies four nights a week, small group, youth group, office hours. It was never-ending. Then, five years ago, we moved here to South Bend. And before long, I was working a full-time job at Notre Dame, on top of being in ministry full-time. And I began working 80 to 90-hour weeks every single week, uh, seven days a week. Many times I would go six or eight weeks straight without a single day off. Now, this wasn't by choice. I was doing this, I was working this many hours just so that my family could make it. Uh, we came into this position with uh, not very much financial security, and so I needed to work all of these hours just to make ends meet. And I was always envious of other people that worked 40 hours a week. Did you know that there are people who work 40 hours a week do nothing else, and make it. <laughs> I would love to be one of those people. 40 hours a week sounds like a vacation to me. But I was working this grueling schedule out of necessity. I also knew, however, that I could not maintain that schedule long term. These 90-hour weeks for months on end, I was very aware and said out loud to a number of people, I am barreling toward burnout. I knew that I was inching closer and closer to having a complete mental breakdown. And here's why I'm saying this. The reason why I'm saying this to you is because I don't want us to get into the meat of this sermon talking about rest and have anyone thinking that I don't know what it's like to not have any kind of margin in my schedule. I want you to know that I'm someone who has battled and is still battling to answer the question, rest? When? When am I going to rest? There is always more to be done. See, something happened to me internally as a result of working this kind of lifestyle. After 10 years of a grueling schedule like that, I realized that something had shifted inside of me. I found that on my rare days off, I found it very hard to relax. Even when I was supposed to be relaxing, I would get restless. I always felt like I need to be doing something. I found it hard to ever sit still. There's no way I could ever sleep until noon, even if I tried. Inevitably, I would always wake up at the same time every single morning with my mind telling my body, all right, get busy, get to work. I had gone from being forced to be busy to being compelled to be busy. Even if there wasn't someone or something pushing me to do those things, I had developed an inner taskmaster that never stopped prodding. 
There's always a running to-do list. But even when I would check things off the list, I could never feel good about accomplishing those things because even if I finished a task, there were three more things to be added. I always thought if I could just finish everything on this list, I'll feel like I'm doing a great job. I always felt like I was working from behind the eight ball. And as a result, there was never any joy in my work. It was drudgery. Do more. Stay busy. Keep working. If there was one thing missing from my life, certainly it was rest. That is why I said earlier that this may be one of the most difficult spiritual disciplines to put in place. Because in our culture, there are few things that are harder to do than to do nothing. Regardless, rest is one of the most important spiritual disciplines to put into practice. So here's where we're going to go today. I'm going to show you that both physical and spiritual rest are established by the perfect design of God for our benefit. We're going to see that resting is actually an act of faith. And we're going to see that rest contributes to what God is able to do in us and through us. And then we'll talk about some of the practical ways that we might put this discipline into practice. We're going to be uh, kind of all over the scriptures today, so um, if you've got a Bible with you, prepare to be like a third grade Awana student doing your sword drills. Um, If you prefer, you can follow along on the screen. We'll begin by looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and the host of all of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So if you're taking notes, here's point number one. God established the rhythm of rest from the beginning. Now, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this question, but why did God spend the seventh day resting? Was he tired? Was God tuckered out from all his creative work? The answer to that is, well, of course not. God has no need for rest. God does not get tired. His strength is perfect and infinite. So it's not like he needed to take a break for his benefit. What God was doing was he was actually setting a pattern for humanity. God was setting a rhythm for us to follow. He wasn't resting for his benefit. He was resting for ours. See, like God, we work, we set about doing tasks, we subdue, and then we rest. But it's not because there's no more work to be done. We know that after the seventh day, it's not like God just put his feet up and let creation uh, tend to itself. Far from it, we know that he went back to work. But before going back to work, he purposely puts in place this Sabbath day, which is intended to refocus and rejuvenate our hearts as we set our hearts 
on him. Follow along into the book of Exodus uh, as we look at more scripture to support this. We have established here God resting in the creation week. Then we find in the book of Exodus an explanation for this in chapter 20. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus 20. In Exodus chapter 20, God is giving Moses the law on Mount Sinai. And this stretches over several chapters. Moses is up on the mountain. God is giving him the law. In chapter 20, God gives him the Ten Commandments. And so, this entire chapter that we find here is not Moses' words. These are actually God's words. It says in verse 1, God spoke these things. So, this is God himself. God's words. Uh, who better to ask than God about why he established the seventh day, right? So, let's read in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. He says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, what we find here is that God established this seventh day, the Sabbath day, as a pattern for man to follow. God explains that he did all this work in six days, and then he sets aside the seventh day, the Sabbath day, to be a holy day of rest to the Lord. And that's important. Uh, That's how it reads in verse 10. He says, The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. This word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to stop, to cease, to rest. It means to pause. And so God establishes this pattern. He makes it holy And he says, I'm going to put into the rhythm of mankind a consistent pause to turn their hearts upward toward me. So God established that the Sabbath would be a day of rest for man to turn his heart to God, to refresh, to refocus. It is for our good. It's for our benefit. This is not just some arbitrary command that God came up with just because. And oftentimes, that's what we turn God's laws into. We picture it as God just sitting up in heaven with a tablet of stone going, hmm, what dumb thing can I make them do for no reason whatsoever? There's a purpose for everything that God commands. God did not just make up this Sabbath rule for us to make Him happy. It's not why he commanded it. He did it for our benefit. When we fast forward to the New Testament, what we find is that the Jewish religious leaders failed to understand the purpose for the Sabbath. This group that we know as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were incredibly legalistic. 
They, they were masters at taking the laws of God and turning them into checklists, taking things that the Lord had written and adding so much more on top of it. They turned everything into work. Ironically, even the Sabbath. They, they took laws that God wrote and they would extrapolate them out to monumental degrees. Specifically, uh, when we talk about the Sabbath, the Pharisees put 39 categories of laws into place so that a faithful Jew would not break the Sabbath command. And, and this was part of the, the written laws called the Mishnah. Okay, 39 categories of laws so that you would keep this law, remember the Sabbath, and keep it holy. For example, it was not allowed to light a fire to pick grain, to carry items of a certain weight any further than a certain distance. They said, writing is work. Cooking is work. Making things is work. So, none of those things are allowed on the Sabbath day. And to break the Sabbath would make someone deserving of punishment. Now, it might be difficult for us to picture what that sort of asceticism looked like in the ancient world. So perhaps it might help to look at some modern examples of how Orthodox Jews have taken those ancient laws and tried to apply them in today's modern technological world. Modern Orthodox Jews have taken those 39 categories of Mishnah law and created ways to be faithful to them today. Enter the following items. The hot mat, the shabob, the Sabbath mode oven, the kosher fridge ease, the Sabbath elevator, and the shaboth app. For Orthodox Jews, electricity use is strictly regulated on the Sabbath. So, if we remember, the Mishnah states that lighting a fire on the Sabbath is prohibited. For modern application, that would mean turning on a light of any kind or opening any electrical current is akin to lighting a fire. So, one is not allowed to turn on a light bulb or to plug anything into an outlet. Writing is not permitted, so texting, emailing, or any other form of electronic communication also prohibited. Cooking over a flame, obviously, is prohibited too. So, what is a modern person to do? Well, a hot mat. Hot mat is essentially a hot plate that's plugged into the wall before the Sabbath begins and stays at a consistent temperature. So, a person can, for example, put a bowl of soup onto the hot mat and have a warm meal without plugging in anything or turning on any heat. Similarly, the Sabbath mode oven, which any of you can buy at Home Depot for only $11,000, turns on automatically to a predetermined temperature without any kind of user intervention and also ensures that the oven light will not turn on when you open the door since turning on a light is lighting a fire. There's also the shabalb, 
The shabal protects against lighting a fire via turning on a light. A timer is set for the bulb to turn on during the day and to put itself out at night. The kosher fridge ease, which thankfully only costs $6, is a device that you fasten to the switch in your refrigerator that when you open the door, the light comes on. It keeps that switch depressed so that it doesn't turn on when you open the door. What if you're traveling and you still want to follow the Sabbath laws? Find a hotel that has a Sabbath elevator. It would be breaking the law on the Sabbath to push any buttons on an elevator. Because if you push a button, you both open an electrical current and you light up the button. Turning on a light is, of course, lighting a fire. The Sabbath elevator is automatically set to stop on every single floor and open the doors by itself. So a person can walk on, not do any work, and still get upstairs. Finally, we have the Shaboth app. This app allows a person to text by speaking without the screen ever lighting up or without pushing, pushing any buttons. Now, let me ask you, do you think that any of these things are even close to why God instituted the Sabbath? Do you really think that God is up in heaven, looking down, fists cocked, just waiting for someone to tick him off by pushing a button or turning on a light switch? Oh, I can't wait for them to mess up by flicking the light on. Of course not. That is not the heart of God at all, nor is it even close to why he instituted the Sabbath. Turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 will specifically be looking at verse 27. In this story, Jesus and his disciples are traveling, and his disciples are hungry, and they begin to pluck some heads of grain. And the Pharisees are upset. The, the Pharisees protest and they say, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Why are they eating? And Jesus begins to tell them a story about David in the Old Testament, how David supposedly broke the Sabbath laws. And here's what he says in verse 27. Mark 2:27. he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. The Pharisees were angry because the disciples had broken one of the many laws that they had invented. The disciples were picking grain because they're hungry. And so Jesus explains another similar story about David being hungry and being fed. And then he points us to this important truth that God made the Sabbath to benefit man, not so that man could be enslaved to more rules. The point, ladies and gentlemen, that I am trying to make here is that from the very beginning, God has always had our best interest at heart. He's put rhythms and frameworks in place in order to protect us, to keep us focused on what is best for us. He commands us not to neglect Sabbath rest, 
because to do so would be to our harm. Make no mistake, God is saying to us, you need rest. You need physical rest. You need spiritual rest. And taking that rest is not only a benefit to you, it's an act of trust and obedience in the providence of the Lord. Uh, Just as an aside here, if you feel guilty about resting, don't. As we've established, it's in the Bible. Point number two. Rest is an act of trust. Rest is an act of trust. Now, one of the things that we've talked about in this series is our all-consuming consumerism. We're driven to continually work in order to be able to purchase, in order to consume. We've got this crazy American idea of being self-made. We build ourselves a kingdom without having to rely on anyone else. And we have placed the responsibility of a good life where our needs are met and our comforts are fulfilled squarely on our own laps. And while it is true that work absolutely is good and commanded, and we're responsible for being faithful, it is not true that we are ever self-made. Everything that we have, every good thing is a gift from God. And when we rest, we are actually showing God that we trust Him to meet our needs. Look now in the book of Leviticus, our favorite place in the Bible to go, I'm sure. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 through 7. Leviticus 25, beginning in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner that lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food." Pretty strange practice, wouldn't you say? We've now gone from taking a Sabbath day to taking a Sabbath year. Uh, Somebody say, sign me up for a Sabbath year, (laughs) right? How do I get one of those? Uh, Where do I sign on the dotted line to get a Sabbath year from work? Sounds awesome. But why would God command this? The answer is in verse 6, where he says, The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you. You see, throughout the six years that they're planting and harvesting, they're trusting that God is going to give them enough, not only for now, 
but also enough to set aside for the Sabbath year, especially in that sixth year, for God to give them abundance in order to give them extra for that year. Can you imagine the amount of trust that it would take to not farm for a year in an agrarian society? That, that's literally setting your entire life, your life, your family's lives, everyone in your household, everything in your household, that is literally setting it in the hands of God, which is exactly the point. When we rest, what we are saying to God is, I trust you to provide for me. I trust you to take care of me. You are my source of sustenance, not me. You are where my blessings come from, not me. Rest gives us proper perspective. What rest says is what I need most is God. See, one of the reasons why we have so much anxiety sometimes is because we put pressure on ourselves to shoulder the burden of taking care of ourselves and our families. It's all up to me. When we rest, what we're saying is, no, it's all up to God. Now, sadly, a Sabbath year is not a command that's given directly to us, but... Sabbath day is. And when we trust in God to take a Sabbath, to cease our work for a day, we know that he will abundantly meet our needs. Now, a silly modern example of this that we can put a visual on might be Chick-fil-A. We all know that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. Makes us all sad when we get that hankering and we go, ah, I can't have the chicken sandwich. It's Sunday. Now, Chick-fil-A, according to studies done on uh, the chain, loses approximately $1 billion in sales every single year by being closed on that day. They could increase their revenue by 15%, over a billion dollars, if they opened on Sunday. But in spite of that, it is the fourth straight year that they have been rated as the top fast food restaurant. Right now they are ranked in in 2018's numbers at eighth in total sales for fast food restaurants. Of course, number one is McDonald's. But amazingly, They're doing this with fewer franchises, far fewer franchises than any other chain. McDonald's, for example, has six times the amount of locations as Chick-fil-A does. But the average Chick-fil-A does double, double the yearly sales as the average McDonald's does. So for every Chick-fil-A... There are six more McDonald's, but every single one of those Chick-fil-A's are churning out double the amount of sales every single year, despite being closed on Sunday. Truett Cathy said that the reason why he did this is because he wanted to make sure by being closed on Sunday it would give his employees an opportunity to rest and to worship if they so choose. 
And I think it's safe to say that God has taken pretty good care of them. When we take time to stop, to rest, to quit our work and pause and focus on God, he provides every time. Point number three, fruitfulness follows restfulness. Um, Here is perhaps one of the greatest benefits of rest. When we rest, we are far more productive after. We are far more efficient, and we are far more fruitful. If you have ever known or been someone who has had a newborn, uh, you know what a lack of rest looks like. Uh, There is no sleep whatsoever. And in those months, you kind of float through life in this dense mental fog. And you do things like leave your car keys in the refrigerator or uh, forget that the stove is still on from 12 hours ago. I sometimes do those things anyway. (laughs) But the point is, When we are without rest, when we're running on empty, we make very little progress. Let's turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. What we're looking at in this story is the feeding of the 5,000. But we're going to look at a small detail that more than likely, we have missed in most of our previous readings. And like I told you before, it's often in those small, forgotten details that we find some of the most life-changing things. Prior to uh, the feeding of the 5,000, in verses 7 through 13 of Mark chapter 6, Jesus sends the disciples out. He sends out the 12, essentially to do missions work. He sends them out into the towns two by two, and they're going to go from house to house, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, casting out demons. What they're going to be doing is hard work, and they're not taking with them any kind of creature comfort. They are doing kingdom business, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be exhausting. So they are sent out. And then, in verse 30, they come back. And here's where we start in Mark chapter 6. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy uh, themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. 
Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. So, they go out, they come back, they report all that they have been doing. They, they give a report on their missions trip. And they're exhausted. And what does Jesus tell them to do? He tells them, come and rest. Pause. Refresh. So, they get in a boat and they begin to cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But the crowds see where they're heading, and they run along the shore, and they beat them to the other side of the lake. Jesus, at this point, sees the crowds. He has compassion on them, and he, he begins to teach them. He says they're like sheep without a shepherd. Meanwhile, the disciples and the rest of the people are getting tired and hungry, And so they tell Jesus, send everybody away. Have them buy themselves some dinner in one of the surrounding towns. But then Jesus takes an offering given by a little child and uses it to feed thousands of people. Now, I know that this is commonly known as the feeding of the 5,000, but in verse 44 it says those who ate were 5,000 men. You see, crowds were counted by the number of men. So a conservative estimate would be 10,000 people. Likely more than 10,000. The point is that this miracle was preceded by a command to rest. They've They've gone out, they've done ministry work, and now they're tired. They're hungry. And Jesus tells them to pause And then Jesus brings abundance. They pause. Jesus brings abundance. As they rest, Jesus feeds 10,000 people. They are on the sidelines watching. Jesus is on the field making plays. This goes back to what I said earlier about trusting in God to provide as we rest. When we trust in God, when we take time to rest, He will take the small things and make them great in His own power. He will make the math work when the math does not work. So, now that we have established firmly the importance of rest. The great question comes now to how. How do we rest? Here's our final point. Point number four. Sometimes Sabbath comes in pockets. Some of you may be in a season like I was where you are working seven days a week. And because I've been there, I know that sometimes it is hard, sometimes impossible, to set aside a full day. 
This is especially true if you have young children. Some of you may be saying, this sounds great, I'd love to do it, but when? When am I going to be able to rest? Well, first, I want us to remember, again, that God did not command Sabbath rest so that he could punish us if we don't do it. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so God commands it for our own good. This also means that he has grace when, because of things outside of our control, we're unable to rest like we want to or need to. But I also want us to notice something else about this story. And that is that Jesus and his disciples take small pockets of rest in what is a very busy schedule. Look first at verse 32 of Mark chapter 6. After he tells them to rest, it says, They went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. They thought they were going to be by themselves when they arrived. But they were only by themselves while they were on this boat. Now, for the disciples to get across the Sea of Galilee sailing on their ship, it would have taken about two hours. So, they have a small pocket of two hours here for them to rest. This happens again in verse 45. After this miracle, it says, He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So the disciples again get on the boat and sail back to where they started. Two more hours. Then for Jesus himself, beginning in verse 46, it says, After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain To pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Now, this isn't to say that Jesus and his disciples didn't take a Sabbath day. They did. Although, again, the Pharisees did not agree with how their Sabbath looked, of course, because Jesus and the disciples still did ministry on the Sabbath. But what Jesus shows us here is that he and his disciples took small pockets of time throughout the week to unplug from ministry. Jesus took time to be by himself, to pray, to rest. We also find in other passages that Jesus took naps when he could. Praise God, Jesus took naps, okay? So don't you dare feel guilty if you do too. If all you do is nap, then we have a problem. But the occasional nap is something the Savior of the world also did. Throughout his time, he stayed connected to the Father in prayer. What we see here is that Sabbath rest doesn't mean that you need a full day to do absolutely nothing. That is not realistic, probably not even healthy. But Sabbath can and should be celebrated in community. Sabbath can be celebrated as a family. Hopefully most of us can take a day each week to put down our work, take a break, and enjoy the blessings of God. 
And guess what? God won't be mad at you if you turn on some lights or do some laundry, even on that Sabbath day. So here, then, is the specific challenge that I'm issuing. And every week there's been one. Remember, number one was scripture before phone. Number two was kneeling prayer thrice daily. Number three was a weekly conversation with a battle buddy about your heart and your habits. Number four was fasting once a week from something sacrificial. For today, what I challenge you is to take a day and or intentional time throughout the week to celebrate Sabbath rest, even in small pockets. During that time, enjoy God's blessings. Eat with your family. Read the word. Pray. Do something relaxing like taking a nap or a hot bath. Watch something relaxing on TV. It might seem silly, but one of the things that I do is anytime I take a shower, I put on meditative music. Helps to block out the noise, empty my mind, and unplug for 15 minutes. Small pockets, wherever I can find them. The point is, be intentional about rest. Because if you aren't, you will never get it. And you will be burnt out because of it. Again, if you have missed any of this series, I encourage you to go back and catch up. If you'd like, I can send you manuscripts of all my notes for these sermons. And my hope is that throughout this series, what we've found are intentional disciplines that we can pursue in order to be spiritually healthy. There is no quick fix. There is no magic bullet. There is only the opposite of epic in spiritual discipline. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for giving us these spiritual disciplines that we can follow in order to be healthy. God, I pray for each person here or listening online. I I pray, Lord, that you would help us to instill these healthy habits in order to grow, in order to uh, intentionally pursue and seek your face. Lord, I pray that we together would trust you. That we would rely on you for everything. That we would build our lives on a foundation of you every single moment of every single day. Lord, as we close this service in worship, Lord, I pray that you would help us to take these moments, focus our hearts, point ourselves upward to you, and respond to all that you have given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, uh, Daryl will play our closing song.